If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. During this difficult time, we want to make it as easy as possible for our readers to get their copy of BBC History Magazine or BBC History Revealed. So for the next few months, we'll deliver your favourite magazine direct to your door with no delivery charge. From today, you can save up to 70% off the shop price and subscribe from just £9.99. That's just £1.66 per issue. There's never been a better time to get your favourite history magazine delivered direct to your home. To take advantage of this unmissable offer, please visit www.buysubscriptions.com forward slash history extra and choose your magazine. Don't forget, all of our magazines are also available digitally on your mobile or tablet device. Visit buysubscriptions.com forward slash history extra for more information. We look forward to welcoming you. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. On today's episode is a conversation with the writer and journalist Anda Corsi. Her latest book, Chanel's Riviera, explores the Côte d'Azur in the 1930s and 40s. It's a story of two worlds, 
Both a glamorous haven for the elite of the 30s, from the Duke and Duchess of Windsor to the designer Coco Chanel, but also later the site of many wartime horrors, as Nazi occupation brought displacement and persecution. Our deputy digital editor, Eleanor Evans, met Anna at her London home a few weeks back to discuss the Riviera's juxtaposed history of luxury and terror and how it shines a light on the controversial legacy of Chanel herself. To start, I wonder if we could just look at what the French Riviera was like for these uh, rich people in the year 1930. The Riviera, of course, had been known for a long while to the British, but they'd always gone there in the winter because of the wonderful climate. Queen Victoria went there, I think, nine times. And it wasn't until the 1920s that it was opened up by uh, some young Americans who decided they would stay there for the summer. They cleared a bit of beach and um, persuaded the hotel they were staying in to stay open. And from then on, it became gradually more and more of a summer resort. And by 1930, by the 1930s, the big hotels were staying open and people had started to go there in the summer. Mm. And this world you describe in your in your book as having um, high life and low morals. Um, and there's a fantastic array of figures who pop up in your book. Could you perhaps introduce us to a few of the, the names and the figures that appear in this history? All sorts of people from... Uh, Grand Dukes who'd escaped from Russia to the well-off, everybody who was fairly rich used to go to the Riviera. Um, The grand film stars went, Maharajas went, uh, several people settled there, sometimes because England had got a bit too hot for them. Somerset Maugham, for instance, uh, the famous writer, uh, had the Villa Moresque there. His male companion had been had up in England on a charge of gross indecency and Somerset Maugham had decided he would not live in England anymore. He would go where he had enjoyed wonderful holidays. And so he settled on the Riviera in this marvellous villa to which he invited friends. H.G. Wells, the famous writer who had written War of the Worlds, which we have seen recently, had a love nest there. He was an irreproachable father of a family in England, but all bonds were loosened when he went to the Riviera. And he had really a succession of lady friends there, most of whom he was perfectly open about. So they were asked everywhere as a couple. Lord Rothermere had a villa there, and he had a wonderful collection of paintings And he too had a string of girlfriends. And he did once say ruefully to his nephew, old mistresses are so much more expensive than old masters. Uh, There's a wonderful passage in your book that you look at a party thrown by Morton. I wonder if you could take us into one of these gatherings. Um, You mentioned that uh, exiled royalty makes an appearance. What what kind of um, atmosphere would have been at one of these gatherings? Uh, People who went to the Riviera in the summer, uh, this wonderful place. It wasn't yet a sea of concrete. It was little fishing villages, big hotels, uh, lovely little restaurants, very often fishermen's restaurants. We were at the freshest of fish and probably local wine. Um, They lived in a kind of little bubble, really. Only the rich could afford to go there. They mostly arrived on the blue train, a special train run from Paris. And it was obviously known as the blue train because it was blue, because all the other French trains were brown. And it, it 
too was extraordinarily luxurious. And people would arrive there, have their summer holiday, and of course, if you're away from home and away from all restraints, behaviour does get a bit bad. As Somerset Moore said famously, it was a, pla- a sunny place for shady people. And of course, one of the most famous residents on the Riviera was the Duke and Duchess of Windsor. The Duke, when he was king, and even before that, had come to the Riviera. And by this time, of course, he was linked with Mrs. Simpson. But when he first came, nobody knew what his feelings were for her. She was one of the house party. She first came with her husband, I think. And then she came with her aunt as chaperone, but in a party of six or eight people. Nobody particularly thought anything. It was only in 1936 when he was king and there was the famous cruise on a yacht called the Narling, which was lent to them, that people realised those are a couple. It wasn't known in Britain, but on the continent, everybody knew. In fact, people would rush to the ports that the Narling was going to call at next, and it was one of the most famous sights of that summer, people gathering in a crowd on the quay, gazing at the Duke with perhaps shirtless in a pair of shorts, the King of England he was then, gazing at the King and his girlfriend. And then when he abdicated, they rented a villa called the Villa La Croix and they lived really as near a regal life as they could there. It was decorated in the Buckingham Palace colours of red, white and gold and the, the, the Duke's crest was on everything Um, from writing paper to the buttons the men's servants wore to the lifebelts around the pool. And, of course, on the Riviera, the great question was, does one curtsy to the Duchess of Windsor? The point was she wasn't an HRH, she wasn't royal, so one shouldn't have had to. And this was, of course, towards the end of the 30s. And all sorts of terrible things were going on in Europe. And in England and everywhere else, what people were really worrying about was what is Hitler going to do next? Of course, on the Riviera, in that little bubble, nobody thought about it. The burning question was, do we curtsy to the Duchess of Windsor? And eventually, Somerset Maugham gave a dinner party for them, and the Duke came in and announced, I'm sorry we're late, Her Royal Highness couldn't get away in time. It was a sort of submerged gasp and everybody realised they took their cue and they curtsied. And of course that was one of the reasons the Windsor disliked the Riviera so much because they were treated like royalty. And of course another reason that nobody on the Riviera worried, including the people who lived there, the fishermen of course were too busy fishing, the local people, but nobody worried because even as things got more and more grim and war seemed ever more likely, the French just shrugged their shoulders and said, we have the Maginot line. Everybody believed it was impregnable, as indeed it was. It was famous. Generals had come from all around the world to inspect it. It had been beautifully designed. Um, I remember going to two of its forts, one actually on the seafront at Cap Martin, and one up in a village called St. Agnès. And the one in St. Agnès was carved out of rock 
and the gun emplacements covered the whole bay. It really was completely impregnable. And of course they believed in it, but what they didn't realize was that the Germans would simply go around it. It's in this rich bubble that we uh, first meet Chanel in your account, Coco Chanel, um, a household name uh, today, but obviously a woman with a very complicated legacy. Um, I wonder if you could just talk to us a little bit about Chanel's upbringing first. Chanel had one of the worst starts in life you could imagine. She was the illegitimate daughter of a peasant market trader whose mother died when she was 11 and whose father promptly dumped her and her sister in an orphanage and then disappeared completely out of their lives. She was abandoned at 11 and she was in this institution for six solid years, this convent. I've no doubt the nuns looked after the orphans well, but it was an institution. And one of the things which I think may have affected her colour palette later was that the only colours she actually saw were black, white and grey, the grey stone of the convent, the black habits of the nuns and skirts of the pupils and the white shirts and the white wimples. So that it did instill in her a great love for order, cleanliness and, how should I put it, background colours. And the one thing that really, of course, helped her about it was that the nuns, she learnt to sew there. I wonder if we could mention here as well, obviously her name, she's she's known these days as Coco Chanel, but her name obviously wasn't Coco. What, what can you say about how, how she came by that name? Chanel's name was Gabrielle Bonheur Chanel, but she got, she acquired the nickname Coco because Soon after she left the orphanage, all the girls had to leave at 18, and she was apprenticed uh, with a cousin to a tailor. But to make extra money, she would sing in a cabaret in a nearby town. And one of the songs had the chorus, Coco, Coco, Coco. And so she became known as Coco then. So as you mentioned, her colour palette, her her elegance and simplicity have come to, to find her her design, her legacy. Can we talk a little bit more about her innovation in fashion, how she came to um, break through into that world? Chanel's breakthrough into fashion really came at the beginning through hats. She'd always had this feeling for elegance and simplicity. She was also one of those people who was able to spot an opportunity when it was well below the horizon. And the first opportunity she spotted was the rich young man who took her to live with him. She did not want to stay working as a tailor's assistant all her life. And with him, she learned to ride very well. She watched smart people, but she didn't always approve of what they were wearing. And when he took her to the races, because she was he, he was a polo player and he, he had race horses, she decided that she would not wear one of the huge hats that were the fashion of, the, of that period, covered with feathers and flowers. She got herself a simple little boater and trimmed it with some black ribbon. And, of course, it made an instant impact. And various people said, can you make me a hat like that? Which she did. 
She then goes off with one of his friends who she falls deeply in love with. And this is probably the best stroke of luck she had in her life. He was somebody who believed that women actually were extraordinarily capable. They could easily break out of their role, which was then purely wives and mothers or lady friends, that they could be successful on their own terms. And he backed her. She opened a milliner's shop and then began to make, they went to Deauville and she began to make clothes then. And she used materials that again, nobody else had thought of, partly because they were cheaper to buy. She used, for instance, cotton jersey, which nobody had ever used before. And she made clothes. Her belief was that women liked to be able to move in their clothes freely. They did no longer wanted to be corseted. They didn't want to be bound. And she also believed that simplicity was at the heart of true elegance. And she always stuck to that. She said clothes should make a woman feel free. They should make her feel uh, younger. And then she'll feel happier and she will look better. And she stuck to a simple palette. What she liked was very simple elegance. It was basically black white or cream, navy and grey, those were the colours she used, but she jazzed them up with costume jewellery. She was the first person, she really put costume jewellery on the map, it hadn't been worn before. Young girls hardly wore jewellery and married women wore, if they were, if they were rich, they wore uh, the family diamonds or diamonds uh, husbands have bought them. It was mostly diamonds, but it was real and therefore probably not very big, unless it happened to be the family tiara. But Chanel thought that women, anybody could wear jewellery, and she used to mix real jewellery and, and uh, bits of glass. She said as long as it looks good. Um, and she also had strings of pearls. She brought in the fashion for wearing strings of pearls. She had a very good eye. I mean, she would spot things that nobody else did. I know an awful lot of people today who have those Breton top sweaters, stripy sweaters. Chanel introduced them. She was wearing one in 1923. She saw them on Breton fishermen's. Well, that's a fashion that's lasted now almost a hundred years that she introduced. So that it was a mixture of simplicity, um, a classicism and uh, something that was really absolutely served its purpose, which I suppose, I mean, it was really the motto of Bauhaus, form follows function in a way. I also wanted to ask about her perfume because so many people will be familiar with Chanel Number no. 5, her most famous, uh, perhaps. Um, can you talk to us about how yes. that came to be named? Yes. Of course, what made her really rich was her scent, Chanel Number no. 5, which became the most famous scent in the world. And this had it or its origins in yet another of Chanel's innovations. At the time she created it, all perfume worn by, shall we say, nice women, in quotes, was flower scents. So that 
that didn't, they didn't last terribly long. But if you wanted to make an impact with your flower scent, you had to absolutely douche yourself in it so that you could smell gardenia from the end of the passage. But it had probably worn off pretty quickly. Well, Chanel thought that women, i.e. her clients, who were some of the most sophisticated uh, women in Europe then and extremely rich and good-looking, deserved something better. And the courtesans, it was still the days of courtesans and mistresses, they were the ones who'd been known for um, delicious, sensuous, long-lasting scents. And this indeed was one of the reasons that, uh, as I say, nice women wore flower scents. The others were considered rather improper because they were worn evoking the wrong sort of image. But Chanel thought, pooh to that. <laughs> Chanel uh, disregarded that. She wanted her, her clients to have the same delicious, sexy, sensual scent that the courtesans had. She always said, put scent where you wish to be kissed, uh, which I think leaves quite a lot of doors ajar. But it was her motto. She believed absolutely that a woman should always wear scent. So she thought she would create one of these. And she was introduced by one of her lovers. She had a lot of lovers, I should say. She was introduced by one of her lovers to one of the most famous, uh, they call them noses, parfumeur in France. And she told him what she wanted. And he said, all right, I will go away and produce some samples for you. And he came back then with 10, and she sniffed them all. And when she got to number five, she said, Cessa, and Chanel number five, she decided just to call it number five. And the other innovation was that unlike all scent bottles before, which were very often beautiful sort of flagons, uh, or rather perhaps by someone like Lalique, um, lovely carved bottles, very elegant and stylish. Hers was totally simple. Again, it was the square bottle we all know with a double C logo. That hasn't changed. It was different in every way. And she started introducing this by putting some on herself and spraying her salon with it. And her clowns would say, what's that wonderful scent? And she would say, well, would you like a little? I'll give you some as a favorite plant. And the word spread. And then, of course, it had to be marketed, which she couldn't do. And she was introduced to the Wertheimer brothers, who I think owned, they owned uh, Bourgeois, or one of the famous French perfume houses. And they agreed to do it. And she rather casually struck a very bad deal for her with them, which caused a feud that lasted many years. They got 70%. The man who introduced her got 20%, and she only got 10%. But it was enough to make her a millionaire's. And Chanel very quickly, Chanel number no. 5, very quickly became the best-known scent of the world. Mm-hmm. Going back to this Riviera scene then in the, in the early 1930s, um, how did Chanel fit in there? What was her life like there? Chanel spotted the place where she built her villa from the deck of her lover's yacht, the Duke of Westminster. 
who was the richest man in England. Their affair was actually coming to an end, but they remained friends, I should say. She had never really had a place that was actually of her own. Her um, salon and apartment, her salon in the Rue Cambour was rented, and she really wanted a place of her own. She was a southerner born and bred, of course, and she wanted sunshine. She she was, there was another thing she introduced, suntans, when she came back once in 1923 uh, from um, a trip on the Duke's yacht. She came back, as they said, brown as a cabin boy. So she made that fashionable too. And she wanted a place she could go in the summer. And so she hired a young architect who designed this lovely villa. And she came down there every summer and spent months there with, with friends. Uh, she entertained, she dreamt up her next collection. Sometimes she would go to Paris, but basically she would spend the summer there. And another thing she loved was, of course, exercise. So she had a tennis court there and she almost always had somebody staying. She had a great girlfriend called Vera who had a cottage in her grounds. She had been uh, introduced to the Paris art scene, arts scene. Chanel's great friend all her life was someone called Mija Sert. Although she, it was a very guarded kind of friendship, but Mija had, who was older than her, but who was the absolute muse and centre of the art scene in Paris. Endless painters from Renoir onwards had painted Misha and she was completely at the heart of it. And she met Chanel at a dinner party and was fascinated by this rather silent and elegant young woman, called on her in her shop the next day and spent four hours talking to her, and really took her up and introduced her to all sorts of people like uh, Cocteau, who was this great French intellectual polymath. He wrote, he drew, he designed stage sets, everything. And Chanel got very involved in that. She, uh, when she got involved with Diaghilev, she designed clothes for a play that Picasso did the curtain for. Um, she knew Picasso well. She knew all of them well. And the dancer, Serge Lifa, she would have them all down to stay, this art circle. They would all come and stay with her. Um, also, probably her lover of the moment. One of those was a very brilliant Basque designer called Eribe. His whole name is too long and complicated to say here. And she, with him, she had designed a collection of diamonds for De Beers, who were finding that the sale of diamonds was going down, because this was pretty soon after the crash of 1929, and diamonds were not selling so well. So they got Chanel to design with Irib a collection for them. And literally the day after this collection was exhibited, De Beers shares went up 10%. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. And she at this time, she shut down her couture business at the beginning of the war. She, at this time, was living in two small rooms in the Ritz. 
the Paris routes, and this was the headquarters of the German high command in Paris. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down you may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings, that frustrating thing your mum does, or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest, whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone, or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Sax.com. So you already mentioned it in your first answer. Um, while the Riviera for these folk is very much a bubble, um, there are global events that, that are happening. There are events in Europe. There was the Wall Street crash of 1929, followed by, you know, unrest rising in Europe and Germany. Um, when did these events start to impact Chanel's world on the Riviera? Even the outbreak of war hardly made any impact on many of the inhabitants of the Riviera. Once again, they shrugged and said, we have the Maginot Line, and it was very far away. And at first, there was only really what was called in England the Ferny War. In France, it was La Drôle de Guerre. And then, um, the following spring, 1940, the Germans swept through the Low Countries and swept around the Maginot Line and all sorts of refugees turned up. The British consuls in Nice and Cannes had been urging the British to leave when war was declared, but an awful lot of them didn't because they thought they would be quite safe. Then, once the Germans had got round the Maginot Line and started advancing on Paris, people got really, really worried. There was a great exodus from Paris. More people came down. And then... It looked as though France was going to surrender. And the news that there would be an armistice penetrated down to the Riviera. And at this point, 
the consuls, Manit said that everybody had got to leave. They managed to commandeer a couple of coal tankers that had called in at the port near Marseille, and they commandeered these, and they got the message across that everybody had to be at Cannes Harbour at 10 o'clock in the morning, that morning in May. Now, getting the message across wasn't as simple as it sounds, because practically nobody had a telephone. You had a telephone if you uh, had a business or if you had an hotel, but private houses hardly did at all. And if you didn't buy the morning newspaper, you didn't know what was happening. And I actually interviewed, I talked to somebody who lived through that. He was a little boy of 12. He said his father was head of Thomas Cook. And his father and mother, when they heard this, they went on foot all around the various villages nearby, telling the people who lived there that they knew that they had to be down at the harbour. You were allowed to take a small amount of possessions with you, I think a small suitcase and a blanket, something like that. One of the people who went on this ship was Somerset Maugham, who wrote a graphic account of it at the end. And these were two of these ships, filthy with coal dust, because, of course, there hadn't been time to clean them, filthy with coal dust, and one loo for about 300 people, because there'd normally been a crew of 30 so conditions were pretty appalling, but they did get away. And then, of course, there was the armistice in on June the 20th, uh, 1940, when France was really divided up. The northern part occupied France, and then there was Vichy France in the south. It was ostensibly free, but run by Pétain. But it was not occupied by either the Germans or the Italians at that point, but it was run by Peter. So um, in contrast to many people who who escaped or got out of France at this time, um, Chanel stayed. Uh, you mention in your account, I think the term you use is vociferously anti-Semitic. How do we see um, this playing out in her behaviour throughout um, the occupation of France? Chanel, like... Uh, I suppose most of France was extremely anti-Semitic, but more in speech than in anything else. She had to be stopped at one of her dinner parties from going into a rant, an anti-Semitic rant, because uh, Cocteau, who was there, thought that this would be highly tactless in front of another guest, who was also a great friend of Chanel's, Kitty Rothschild. So Chanel was certainly anti-Semitic, but one must not forget, this is not a defence, but it's a bit of an explanation, one must not forget that there was a deep vein of anti-Semitism in France and that Pétain, after all, who ran the whole of uh, unoccupied France, introduced anti-Semitic laws that were just as stringent as the Germans, without even being made to, just voluntarily. And a lot of French people turned in their neighbours who were Jewish, and people were deported. And this was done by the Germans, of course, in occupied France, but in unoccupied France, it, it was done a lot by other Frenchmen. 
so that, yes, she was anti-Semitic, as indeed most of them were. And some of her other behaviour at this time, her other choices, um, could be seen, you know, as collaboration. Uh, and uh, was it was boyfriend? Yes, yeah. So, what what can you say about her behaviour during the war? You, you know, where did she, where did she live? How did she act during the war? After the first exodus from Paris, Chanel returned there, and I would say that she was she adored France. She she was through and through a French woman. She was also very pro-British, but above all, she was pro-Chanel. And there were very few people in her family she was close to, but one of them was her nephew, who she adored, who she'd brought up. She had paid for his education, had him educated in England because she admired the English so much and given his family a chateau in the south of France in the Auvergne, and he was captured when the Maginot Line fell. And she was very worried about him because his health was poor, in fact. He did die later of TB. And she wanted to rescue him. And in about 1942 or 43, there was a, a scheme that had been arranged with the Germans that they would repatriate certain Frenchmen if a number of others went to work in Germany in their factories. I think it was something like three Frenchmen to one repatriation. And she hoped that he'd be one of these, and he wasn't. And she was determined somehow to get him out. And she, at this time, she shut down her couture business at the beginning of the war. She, at this time, was living in two small rooms in the Ritz, the Paris Ritz, and this was the headquarters of the German high command in Paris. And she, anybody could dine in the dining room there. There were a lot of Germans, and she met there. And one of these Nazis there was a man called Baron von Dinklage, who had lived before the war in France uh, at Sanary for a long time and uh, had served as a tennis professional there. Chanel might even have met him some years ago. He spoke French perfectly from having lived there and he was in fact half English, which she never tired of telling people. But there he was, he was a German, he was working for the Nazis. And she approached him. One of the things that encouraged her to do this was the fact that he was not in uniform. He'd, he'd obviously had some other job with them and asked him if he could help her. And he said, I can't, but I know somebody who might be able to. You may wonder why he said this, but after all, she was the great Chanel. And that was a period during which um, Hitler had ordered uh, the occupying German troops to be fairly decent, to, to, to be decent to French people, because they believed that after the war, uh, France, if people liked them would be easier to rule than if there was constant resistance. So they ordered fraternization at first. And so, yes, he said he would try and help her, but he couldn't, but a friend of his could, who was another, he was a captain mom who had been brought up in Belgium and uh, his parents ran textile factories. He knew all about textiles, which of course Chanel did too. 
And he managed to put across to the German high command that uh, Chanel's nephew would be the perfect person to run the textile factory that they were re they planned, the Germans planned to reopen just outside Paris. And so he did escape. And through all this negotiation, Chanel and Baron von Dinklage, who was known as Spatz, Sparrow to his friends, became lovers and remained so throughout the war. They led a fairly quiet life, usually dining in Chanel's room, sometimes attending um, parties, entertainments, given by some of the collaborating French women. But that was about all. And they would go down to her villa in the summer. They would spend summers there. So, yes, she was what they call a horizontal collaborator. So how did this aspect of her legacy then uh, come to be more forgotten? Or how did, how did she escape persecution as an Nazi collaborator after the war? After the liberation, the immediate reaction of the French was something called the épuration sauvage, a sort of savage cleansing. And the first people to suffer in this were the women. Women, any woman who'd been suspected of sleeping with a German, was usually had her head shaved. An American soldier who landed in France after the liberation, when somebody said, what was your main impression of the liberation. He said the hair in the streets. And when I say that 80,000 Franco-German babies were born by the end of the war, it meant an awful lot of women uh, did go to bed with Germans. Anyway, they were the ones who suffered. Usually but not always, but very often, these women were women whose husbands had been captured or killed and who had really no means of support. Perhaps they had small children. And I often think if I had been in that position and some German soldier had said, if you're nice to me, I'll see your children are fed. What would one have done? Anyway, Chanel did not have that excuse at all, but she was one of those women who was accustomed always to have a man in her bed. And here was this handsome German baron um, who clearly adored her, much younger than her. For both of them, it was rather a trophy match. Anyway, immediately after the war, she was whisked off by a couple of resistance fighters, I think it was the FFI. She was taken away but she returned after a few hours. They obviously decided not to do anything. She was, I should say, a tremendous friend of Winston Churchill, who she admired enormously. Before the war, every time he went to Paris, he would go and see Chanel, and he would take his son Randolph quite often. There was one wonderful account of Winston weeping on Chanel's shoulder after the abdication. He was so shattered. But they were great friends. And that was probably known. And I think they thought it might be too risky to do anything to Chanel. And also, the other thing, again, this is her being brilliant at an opportunity. The first thing she did when Paris was liberated was to 
put forward the announcement that every single American soldier could go to her boutique and have a free bottle of Chanel Number no. 5 for his wife or his girlfriend. And so the huge long queue went there. And if they couldn't talk French, they would just hold up five fingers. And I think if anything had happened to her, quite possibly the whole of the American army would have had something to say. So um, moving away from Chanel then, what your book also does um, so well is explore um, the very different experiences of some uh, Jewish refugees or people who faced immense hardship during occupation in Vichy, France. What can you say about some of the other experiences you explore in your book? One of the other things about occupied France, unoccupied France, or the no-no part of France, as it was known known as. One of the other things about it was the enormous number of Jewish refugees there and the con- their contrasting stories, sometimes of enormous kindness, sometimes of almost unbelievable treachery. I went to the Yad Vashem archive in, in Jerusalem to look at these stories, find these stories, and I found really quite a lot. Uh, first-person testimonies, which hadn't ever been looked at before. And so the stories I'm able to tell are, uh, some of them are heart-rending in what happened, and some are charming. I mean, for instance, one was a young Jewish woman who, in fact, she sheltered a fellow refugee, and then she heard the Germans were coming to that village where she was living in and she was pretty certain her neighbours wouldn't betray her and she heard that the Germans were going to do one of their periodic sweeps in the interior picking up Jews in the village and she was terrified and she didn't know where to go and she went to the local baker she knew and she said I don't know where to go what shall I do and immediately he said we have a room upstairs You have to keep the curtains drawn in the daytime. We will make it as nice as we can for you. It will be hot because the oven is below. I'm sorry, but we will give you water and everything. And she then broke it to him. She'd got her boyfriend there. He said, come along, but you must come after dark as soon as you can. And she went there and she found the room beautifully prepared. And I remember reading and I could so understand it, you know, and the kindness of these people. She said... We both burst into tears because we hadn't realised people could still be so kind. And they were both saved. He went and later joined the resistance and was one of the people who liberated the village. And uh, there were many members of the Roman Catholic Church who were wonderful. The Bishop of, the Archbishop of Nice was a marvellous man who used to manage to insert Jewish children into... Uh, the boarding houses and schools for um, little French children. Because you see, of course, quite a lot of the French parents who had worked before, been to in Algeria, France's province, would leave their children in a boarding house or a school in the south of France while they were away. And these little children had to have their names changed. And the nuns would get them changed to a name that was as like their own as possible. Because one of the tricks the Germans would do was call out a 
a child's name. Um, and if it turned round wrongly, I mean, if it was called Adele and they called out Sarah and the little girl turned round, they would know there was, that it wasn't really a French child. And the other thing they would do sometimes in a village, they may, might ask a child uh, who looked Jewish, when did you last see your father? And a child will always answer truthfully. And they would find out things quite often like that. But a lots of children were saved like that. So uh, why did you choose to approach this period in this way, looking at it both through the lens of this um, high life, low moral set and also um, people who experience some really horrendous conditions? Well, I'd always been fascinated by the Riviera and I'd always been fascinated by Chanel. And when I learned that she'd put down her roots in 1930 and left it in 1944, I thought, that's my time frame. And the other interesting thing about that particular period was there was this extraordinary, extraordinarily frivolous, hedonistic uh, lifestyle run only by the rich and famous. And then there was the contrast of the war and the horrors that came with the German invasion um, and the poverty and the dreadful things that happened. It was the contrast, I think, fascinated me between the glamorous, hedonistic uh, lifestyle before the war, really extraordinary, and all the cast of characters, the rich, the famous, the intellectual, like Aldous Huxley, film stars like Marlene Dietrich, uh, who came there before the war, and the life they led then, and the hideous lack of food. Uh, people lost so much weight, they became so thin, they had so little food, and they suffered so badly from malnutrition that um, their teeth would snap, fingernails would fall off. I had never realized any of that till I researched it. Uh, the heroic behavior of those who sa saved a lot of Jewish people at the risk of their own lives, the awful betrayals of others who would betray a next-door neighbour they'd lived next to for 20 years for payment from the Germans. I mean, the contrast in human behaviour, the highs and the lows, really fascinated me. That was Ander Corsi. Chanel's Riviera Glamour, Decadence and Survival in Peace and War, 1930-44, to is out now published by Weidenfeld and Nicholson in the UK and by St Martin's Press in the US. Thanks for listening. Today's podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Tune in next on Wednesday when Toby Green will be discussing the history of West Africa. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.